Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me back to 2 Peter. And we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday in 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter went off on false teachers. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9 this morning, but let me begin by reading from the very beginning just to kind of set the scene again for us. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And now to our text for today, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men... For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Father, this is a heavy-hitting text with lots of difficult uh, phrases and verses to get our minds around, but we ask that your spirit, the same spirit that inspired Peter to write these words, would now illuminate us, our minds, to understand what he meant by what he wrote here, and that you would use this text uh, and this exposition of it to help people come to Christ and or become like Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, I want to begin our exposition of this text today by having you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, which if you're not familiar with Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So find Matthew and go back a book, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet, and he ministered to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem from exile. And sadly, they had learned very little, it seemed, from their time in captivity and had lapsed into many of the same sins that resulted in God having to send them into exile in the first place. Now they had again grown distant from the Lord, had become characterized by spiritual and moral compromise, and so consequently, a terrible day of judgment was coming. But in order to keep God's people from being overwhelmed with dread and despair, Malachi ended his prophecy with an encouraging word to the faithful remnant. And he reassured them that when God poured out his wrath on the nation of Israel, he would distinguish between the godly and the ungodly and spare the former and punish the latter. Ultimately, he writes here that the godly would be rescued from God's coming judgment through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Malachi wrote these words about 430 years before the birth of Christ, which makes this book a fitting conclusion to the Old Testament since it gave something for God's people to look forward to or to hope in during the intertestamental period, which is the white space in between Malachi and Matthew, known as the 400 silent years. But let's look, pick up the text in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Malachi wrote, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. 
They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and the, every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So this passage establishes God's pattern of judgment, that he will punish the unrighteous while at the same time preserve the righteous. Based on his wisdom, his justice, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his wrath, God is able to judge the wicked while at the same time rescuing the godly. That's essentially Peter's point here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And I think just like Malachi wanted to give God's people hope amid the doom and gloom of God's coming judgment, Peter wanted to give his readers hope amid the doom and gloom portrayed uh, in this passage. And, and so he masterfully intertwined condemnation with consolation in order to warn the ungodly that they would be punished and to comfort the godly that they would be preserved. And the ungodly people that Peter had in mind here were obviously the false teachers. And this entire chapter, I said last week, is just a scathing rebuke of false teachers who seek to deceive and destroy God's people. And you could divide this chapter up into three sections. Verses one through three, you could call the denunciation of false teachers, which we looked at last week. The verses we're looking at today, verses four through nine, could be called the destruction of false teachers. And then what remains in verses 10 through the end of the chapter, you could call a description of false teachers. And so Peter wanted to not only alert us of the presence of false teachers in the church, but he also wanted us to be able to recognize them, and so he provided a detailed description of what they look like and what they sound like so we wouldn't be led astray by their heretical beliefs or hypocritical behaviors. And I said last week that verses one through three really serve as an introduction or a general overview of the subject of false teachers. And in those first three verses, Peter gave at least eight warning signs of a false teacher to help us spot one when we see one or we hear one, which is very helpful because, as I said, uh, false teachers don't show up at, a, at, at church wearing a sign that says, I'm a false teacher. And so what are these warning signs? Well, we looked at them last week. Number one, their presence is to be expected. Number two, their teaching is usually very subtle. Number three, their profession of faith in Christ is likely false. Number four, their ministry is often successful or popular. Number five, their lifestyle is typically immoral. Number six, their hypocrisy is detrimental to Christianity. Number seven, their motive is personal gain. And then finally, number eight, their doom is guaranteed. And we said in the end of verse three, we got that uh, warning from the last phrase there, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, the fact that God will judge them has been hanging over them from eternity past. God is not standing by idle. He knows, he sees, he hears, and he will punish the heresy and hypocrisy of false teachers that has not escaped his attention. He's not asleep at the wheel. He's wide awake and he's ready to judge these heretical hucksters. And I think it's ironic that these false teachers had explained away the return of Christ, claiming it was just one of many clever myths made up by the apostles and so therefore they didn't believe in a final judgment. No Christ 
return no judgment. But they were in for a rude awakening. And Peter was intent on proving that God would judge false teachers and all those who rebel against him and his word. And so he referenced three Old Testament examples of divine judgment that set the precedent for the future and final judgment of the wicked. And these three examples that we see here in our text today are like a series of three paintings that are meant to hang together together, uh, hang together hang on a wall. Some of you have uh, pictures like that or artwork like that in your home or you've seen them in stores where, you know, it's just not one painting, but it's kind of three. It's a, it's a triplet and, the, and they're designed to go together. And so Peter purposely paraded us through this hellish gallery and forced us to examine each one of them one at a time. Unless we become overwhelmed by dread and despair, he also pointed out the hope in the midst of the horror of God's judgment, namely that God will deliver the righteous while destroying the rebellious. And so I want us to see here in verses four through nine how Peter weaved together two themes. Two themes. First of all, the awful fate of false teachers, and secondly, the joyful hope of faithful believers. And he wanted to confront the false teachers, and he wanted to comfort faithful believers. And so I've just come up with two points here. Number one, divine destruction. The ungodly are reserved for torment. And point number two is divine deliverance. The godly are rescued from trials. And uh, you may have noticed when we read this at the beginning uh, of the message that it was hard to kind of take a break or to take a breath, catch your breath as you're reading verses four through nine. Well, the reason for that is that it's one long sentence in the Greek. In fact, it's one of the longest sentences in the New Testament, and it includes a number of conditional clauses. For those of you that remember junior high grammar class, a conditional clause uh, included two things. What? An if and a, a then. It's been a long time since junior high. You didn't do so good on that little pop quiz, right? But you have an if-then statement. And so we're going to see three times the word if, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 7, uh, all are answered by the concluding then in verse 9. So let's look at this one long sentence divided up into two sections. Number one, divine destruction, the ungodly are reserved for torment. And this is verses four through six. So as I mentioned already, Peter chose three of the most memorable examples of divine judgment in the Old Testament, all from the book of Genesis. And each of these examples clearly and undeniably illustrate that no one is above or beyond God's judgment. So the first example is that of the fallen angels. The fallen angels, verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically when God created the angels, but based on what God said in Job 38, verses 4 through 7, about angels worshiping him while he created the universe, we can assume that it was sometime in eternity past prior to the creation of the world when he created angels. According to Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 through 9, there was a great war in heaven between the angels and between specifically Michael the archangel and the dragon, who is Satan or the devil, and he, along with a third of the angels, were cast out of heaven because of their rebellion against God. Many Bible scholars believe that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are both veiled references to the fall of Satan, or Lucifer as he's called, uh, the, the uh, kings of Tyre and the kings of Babylon are, are sort of types of Satan. Um, those rebellious leaders, uh, arrogant men who rebelled against the Lord. And so here was the highest, the most beautiful angel God ever created uh, wanted to be worshiped alongside God. It all went to his head. Uh, and so... God cast him out of heaven. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 10, 18 that he saw Satan falling from heaven like a lightning bolt. Luke 10, 18. 
According to Ephesians 6.12 and 1 Peter 5.8, Satan and his well-organized minions uh, are on the loose today and are prowling around seeking to attack and devour people. And Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, says that the devil and demons will be bound during Christ's millennial reign and eventually cast into the lake of fire forever. Well, notice that Peter mentioned that these angels were cast into hell already and committed to pits of darkness. And so these must be a special group of fallen angels, which are likely, I think, the same ones that Jude mentioned in his letter. And you may remember that I said that Second uh, Peter and Jude are companion epistles. They're kind of like sister letters. There's lots of similarities between the two. Uh, some scholars actually say that they borrowed from one another, but I would say they were both independently written uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the similarities between the two uh, really are most clearly seen here in, in 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, but notice Jude 6. Just turn over a couple pages to the right here. Again, Jude addressing the same subject of false teachers he says, and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Peter already mentioned these same angels in his first letter uh, and said they disobeyed during the days when Noah was building the ark. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Again, not all the demons are in prison because they're out and about doing their evil work, but there are some who are in prison. Who are they? Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Well, let's turn back to the days of Noah and see who Peter may be referring to. And this is Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we find the account of Noah building the ark. And in the first four verses, this is what Moses recorded, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. The sons of God uh, used in other places in scripture as a reference to angels. Um, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So it seems that Moses was describing here fallen angels who overstepped their bounds and cohabitated with women or perhaps they possessed men who had sexual relationships with women, however you want to consider it, uh, and they gave birth to this race of giants called the Nephilim, which contaminated the human bloodline and making, made, made mankind unredeemable. Uh, this may have been a satanic attempt to prevent the coming of the Messiah by making it impossible for a sinless seed of the woman to be born. Remember Genesis 3.15 talks about that. And so as a result of the wickedness of these angels, God, according to Peter, cast them into hell, which is actually a translation of a single word, Tartarus, which is only used here in the New Testament, and according to Greek mythology, Tartarus was identified as a subterranean abyss that was even lower than Hades where the wickedest people received the severest punishment. And I think this is sort of like when Jesus used the term Gehenna to describe hell, which was the name for the garbage dump in Jerusalem where the fires burned continuously. And he wanted just to illustrate the eternal torments of hell. 
And so Peter likely used the term Tartarus because it would have been familiar to a large number of the converted pagans who were among his readers, and he wanted to differentiate between where these angels are from the place of final punishment that we refer to as hell or the lake of fire, two different places. He calls them a pit of darkness. They're confined to to pits of darkness. Your translation may say chains of darkness because there's some uh, different uh, manuscript evidence for both translations. Um, But either way, uh, what is being described here is a loss of freedom in a place that could be compared to being on death row awaiting execution. And by the way, this was a place that demons were terrified of. And they actually begged Jesus not to send them there. You may remember uh, the story of the Gadarene demoniac. And Jesus showed up on the shore and he met this guy that was possessed with a legion of demons. And uh, when he called them out, they said, please don't send us to where? Remember? The abyss. And so I think that's what they were referring to is this, this, uh, this pit of darkness Um, They wanted to be free to continue to roam around until the judgment day. And so we see the first example here uh, of the fallen angels. The second example is the flooded world. The flooded world, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter has already mentioned Noah and the flood in his first letters, we were just there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, he says, in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, he's going to mention the flood again in the last chapter of 2 Peter, verse 6, he talks about how the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at, the t- at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. And so, again, let's go back to the, the account of the flood, Genesis chapter 6. Hopefully you saw this coming and so you kept your finger there or something, but you're back to Genesis chapter 6, and right on the heels of the, the story of these um, fallen angels, it says in verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You think Moses was trying to make a point about how depraved mankind had become? The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. He went on to give him instructions about building an ark. He gave him the blueprints. And then in verse 17, he follows it up again saying, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of the water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. And then chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So God was so grieved that everyone on the face of the earth except for Noah was totally wicked. He decided to destroy them all with a worldwide flood and start all over again with Noah and his family. And back in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter described Noah as a preacher of righteousness, which implies that the entire time Noah was pounding boards together to build the ark, he was preaching to the mocking spectators and warning them that if they didn't repent of their evil ways, they would be swept away by this flood. And sadly, after 120 years of calling people to repentance, no one but his three sons and daughter-in-laws were 
responded and were saved. I mean, talk about a tremendous amount of faith. To build a boat in the middle of the desert, to talk about a flood when it had never rained before, and the entire time you're being thought of as if you're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're a crazy guy. I'm so thankful that the writer of Hebrews included Noah in that hall of faith. Turn back a few pages to the left, Hebrews chapter 11. You're in the neighborhood there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so just like the rest of the Old Testament saints, Noah's faith was credited to him as righteousness and that's why God safely preserved him amid the flood. And so you have the fallen angels, you've got the flooded world, and then finally you have the filthy cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice verse 6. And if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Jude also included the example of Sodom and Gomorrah in his Rebuke of false teachers. Look at Jude chapter 7. Jude chapter 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so these two cities were cesspools of sexual perversion. They'd embraced the practice of homosexuality as a, a normal, natural way of life, even though God clearly condemns it. And so to show all succeeding generations his extreme hatred of homosexuality, God rained down fire and brimstone upon these cities and reduced them to ashes. And again, we have to go back to the original account in Genesis, Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, and there's much here that we could look at, but let me just read for you the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, a couple of angels showed up to announce to Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son, and before they left, they also told him that the Lord was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a concern to Abraham because his nephew Lot lived there. And so he began to appeal to the Lord to not destroy the city if he could find some righteous people uh, in it, and he got them down to just 10. And he said, okay, if there's just 10 righteous people, will you withhold your judgment? He said, sure. And I think he was assuming that with Lot and his wife and their kids and you know, the daughters and sons-in-laws, perhaps, that there would be at least 10 people uh, and so he wouldn't uh, follow through with this threat of destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the angels ended up going to see Sodom and Gomorrah themselves. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Well, Lot knew that was a very bad idea in light of the wickedness of that city. And so he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And sure enough, as Lot knew they would, they called out to him and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let 
let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now that is unconscionable that he would kind of you know, throw his daughters to the wolves, if you will, and hold on to that thought because we've got to somehow reconcile this in our minds based on what Peter says about Lot uh, in, 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 in Second Peter. But they said, stand aside, verse 9, this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now he will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. These guys weren't taking no for an answer. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever uh, you have in the city, bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Huh, that's funny, Lot. Verse 15, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. How beautiful is that? Even though this man seemed to be a man of compromise, God still had compassion on him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And when they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is small. Please let me escape there. Uh, is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities who, what grew, and what grew on the ground. But his wife, from behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. The picture here is of these two cities being completely incinerated to the point that to this day there's considerable doubt to their exact location. In fact, some believe that they're buried under the southeast corner of the Dead Sea, which is so ironic because according to Genesis 13, 10, Lot had chosen that particular region because of how fertile it was, that it was ideal for growing crops and grazing animals. And now if you've been to Israel and you've been to the Dead Sea, I mean, there's nothing alive there. It's literally dead. And it stands forever as a testimony to God's wrath against man's sin. Peter said that Sodom and Gomorrah was an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if you are a good Bible student, you know that Sodom and Gomorrah comes up often throughout the pages of Scripture. They're mentioned some 20 times as an example that you cannot pursue ungodliness and escape and expect to escape God's judgment. God didn't spare the wicked angels. He didn't spare the wicked inhabitants of the earth. He didn't spare the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And neither will he spare anyone who rebels against him. 
And so it says, if Peter was saying to these false teachers, where in the world did you come up with this idea that God will never judge anyone? I mean, biblical history is filled with example after example that confirm the exact opposite. God has always judged those who follow the ways of the world, and he's always spared those who follow the ways of his word. And with that, we come to our next section. Number two, divine deliverance, the godly are rescued from trials. And Peter wanted us to know that the same God who rains down fire and brimstone from heaven on unrighteous people also rescues righteous people and takes them to live with him in heaven. Notice verse seven. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Three times Peter referred to Lot as righteous, which after what we just read in Genesis 19 may seem confusing and even contradictory based on how Lot is depicted in the book of Genesis. So let's talk a little bit about Lot. Lot had accompanied his uncle Abraham when the Lord had commanded Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And so we can assume that, that Lot bought into the whole plan of God, that he was uh, a believer in the sense that he believed the promises that God made uh, to, to, to uh, his uncle Abraham. And so he was committed to go along for the ride. And uh, in the same way that uh, uh, Abraham's Faith was credited to righteousness. I would say that Lot's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so God blessed them both uh, in this new land. They had so many possessions that eventually they had to part ways. And so Abraham gave Lot the pick of the land and he chose to settle in the Jordan Valley on the outskirts of Sodom, even though the city was notoriously wicked. Genesis 13, uh, 13 says that. And then even in Genesis 14, it's interesting that after some time, Lot eventually moved into Sodom. That's usually how it goes, by the way, right? You kind of get on the fringe of worldliness, on the fringe of ungodliness, and uh, just kind of flirting with sin a little bit, and next thing you know, you're smack dab right in the middle of it. And when the men wanted to sexually abuse the two angels, who were staying at his house, he sadly offered up his two daughters to, to, to do whatever they wanted with them. Um, he was reluctant to leave Sodom when the angels told him to flee for his life. In fact, he actually negotiated, uh, hey, do I have to really go that far? Can I go just this far? And then when he finally left, if you know the end of the story, he, he got intoxicated and committed incest with his two daughters. And so if, if, if all we had to go on was the Old Testament account of Lot, we might conclude that he wasn't a very righteous man. But Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us otherwise. Again, his uncle Abraham had appealed to the Lord to spare Sodom if there was 10 righteous people there. So the assumption is that Lot qualified as one of those righteous people I already mentioned this, that Lot must have believed in God and his promises, and so God reckoned that to him as righteousness, like he did Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. And then notice what Peter said here about how he was genuinely grieved by all the sinful things that he saw and heard living in Sodom, and he sought to shield the two angels from the unbridled lust of the Sodomites. And it actually says that his soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So his soul was, was tortured, as it were, by the immoral, outrageous behavior of the ungodly society in which he lived. And in witnessing the filth and the, the wickedness all around him day after day wore him down as if he was being tortured to death. Isn't that the goal of torture? 
to kind of wear you down. You get waterboarded or you get put on the stretching block. It's just to wear you down. And that's what was happening to Lot. They, they wanted him to give in. And we get this, right? Because like Lot, um, we face pressure to conform to the wicked world around us. We're regularly tempted to, to compromise our convictions in, in all sorts of ways. And to remain faithful in the midst of, of the filth is not easy. And perhaps the biggest challenge is not growing callous to the wickedness all around us. That it, and it gets to the point where it just no longer grieves us like it used to. And I think that's what happens when sin becomes commonplace in a society like it has ours. The, the danger is that it no longer offends us. We lose a sense of outrage against evil practices that are contrary to God's word. Which if that's true of you, that may be an indication that you've become conformed to the world. And so I'd encourage you to consider if you uh, if this is your experience living in this world, living in this sinful culture in which we live that's becoming more and more depraved, um, does it oppress you? Does it torment you? But then notice where Peter goes from here. He says, if he rescued, if God rescued righteous Lot, verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue you, essentially, how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. This is kind of the conclusion of what Paul was, or what Peter was, was, was the point that Peter was making here. And the word temptation there is the word parasmos, which is a word that could be translated either temptation or trial, depending on the context. And so, uh, I think the idea of that word is, is really t- a test. We're, we're tested. Um, or, uh, and, and here it, it, it seems to imply that we're being attacked, again, by false teachers with an intent to destroy, who, who are intent on destroying us. And so all of us are relentlessly tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil to give in to sin, and all of us have to frequently endure all sorts of trials and tribulations as a result of living and working in a world where godliness is despised. And so Peter wanted to reassure us that no matter who attacks us or, or how often we're attacked, God will not allow us to fall away from the faith or, or to forsake him. We'll never become an apostate. And don't miss this. God didn't protect Noah and Lot by isolating them from the world, but by enabling them to remain pure in the midst of the moral corruption that surrounded them. In fact, that was Jesus' prayer for us. In the high priestly prayer, John 17, 15, he said to the Lord, said to God the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So it's not God's plan to pull us out of this world. It's not God's plan for us to isolate ourselves somewhere, to go off into the, you know, the hill country. I joke about the hill country, right? Go off to the hill country, hide out somewhere, build your little place where you can prep for the the end times, right? That's not God's desire. That's not his plan. He He doesn't want to pull us out of the world, but he wants to preserve us in the midst of it, which by the way, should be a source of great comfort for us as believers because there's no way you can escape the wickedness of this world. I mean, you can go try to, you know, get off the grid somewhere and, you know, stay away from all that stuff, but there's really no way to do it. And that's ultimately not God's will for his people. He wants us smack dab in the middle of it where we can make an influence with the gospel. Peter had already told us in the first chapter that those who truly know Christ have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Second Peter 1 verse 4, he says, you've become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Paul told the believers in Thessalonica that Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. That God rescued Paul from all sorts of trials and temptations, and he told Timothy about a number of these uh, in 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, uh, verse 11, for example, persecutions, suffering such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Elysrael, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. So Peter concluded here that God has a, has a flawless track record of rescuing godly people while judging ungodly people. And these stories of destruction are also stories of deliverance. And the wicked are being reserved, it says there. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So the wicked are being reserved ultimately for the great white throne judgment where God will condemn every ungodly person from every age uh, to eternal hellfire. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that. But notice the stark contrast between what God has reserved for us as believers and unbelievers. Look at 2 Peter um, verse 17, 2 Peter 2, 17, same chapter. We're going to see this in a second, uh, or at least maybe next week. Talking about false teachers, these are springs without water and misdriven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So guess what? What's reserved for unbelievers? Hell. It's another reference for hell. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. What's reserved for believers? Chapter 1 verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we have an inheritance in heaven reserved for us, waiting for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 Paul said, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the greatest irony, I think, of this text is the very event that the false teachers were suggesting would never happen is the very event that will bring about their ultimate condemnation. That's the return of Christ. And when Christ returns, false teachers will be judged as surely as were the angels and the world in Noah's day and the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. No ungodly, unrighteous person survived the flood or fire of God's wrath in the past, and no ungodly, unrighteous person will survive the future flood and fire of God's wrath in the future. I find it interesting that Christ himself used the story, these same stories of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah to warn us to be, to be prepared for his return. Turn to one more passage as we close this morning, Luke 17, Luke 17, and here we see Jesus foretelling his second coming, and notice the similar imagery that he uses here. This is Luke 17, verse 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. In other words, in the days leading up to the return of Christ, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came, excuse me, and destroyed them all. So mankind was just going about their normal everyday business and were completely taken by surprise when the flood, wa- the, the flood waters washed them away. Verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And so the people of Sodom and Gomorrah just going about their normal everyday lives and were totally taken off guard, totally surprised when fire and brimstone poured down from heaven and destroyed them. Verse 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And then notice 
just how Jesus talks about how he will distinguish, how Christ will distinguish between the godly, the ungodly, the unrighteous uh, and the righteous. Verse 31, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must turn, uh, not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And it might be easy to assume that Jesus was referring to the rapture, right? That one person is gonna be taken away to heaven. I think a better way to understand this is this is a, in the context of, of, of God's wrath that comes when Christ returns and that one person is gonna be taken away in judgment, gonna be washed away in judgment. It's gonna be incinerated uh, by the judgment of the Lord, just like the flood and just like the fire even someone sleeping in the same bed. That's some serious differentiation, right? Between that husband who is saved and that wife who isn't saved, or that wife that is saved and that husband who isn't saved. There's a clear line of demarcation, and God will make sure to judge the wicked one and to preserve the righteous one. Listen, beloved, God's judgment on mankind is inevitable, but it's not inescapable. There is hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said this, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The question is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that you have given us in your word that while judgment is inevitable, it's not inescapable, and you've provided a way through your son Jesus and through what he did in his life, his death, his resurrection, for us to be rescued from your wrath. Lord, forgive us for growing callous to the outrageous behavior of those around us, the wickedness that we uh, see and hear every day. Lord, I pray you'd just resensitize us to that, that we would um, be like Lot in that uh, his right, our righteous soul would be tormented by the things we see and hear around us, but that we would have the compassion even that you had on Lot, we would have with lost people, uh, realizing that, um, that uh, they don't know what they do and uh, that we would beg you to forgive them and that we would boldly reach out with the gospel with an urgency that's well aware of what the future holds for those who don't repent. And so help us even now in this season of Christmas where it's, uh, we have more opportunities, it seems, than ever to talk about Jesus, that we would take advantage of that and uh, that you would give us opportunities even this week to tell others about how they can have the hope of heaven because of the birth of Christ. And not just the birth of Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. We pray this in his name, amen.